How are you? Yeah, good evening, Rod. Here we are, and spring has sprung. Spring has sprung. We're a little bit late, and you've been on holiday. How was that? I have been on holiday, so apologies that this show is going up, what, three or four days late than what we normally would. So that is my fault. I was away with not much tech. So yeah, I've had a good week in the sun with the family and a a friend and their family, and it was fantastic. And yeah, very non-techy. Obviously, I have my phone with me, but I didn't really use an iPad or a Mac or really any devices. So I'm very enjoyable, I must say. That's nice. It's strange. There's a colleague of mine. I'm going to be off next week. I'm off to America. And he's on his way out there because he's got American family. So he's off to Atlanta, Georgia to to visit his family or landing in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's been texting me from the plane. He said, I'm at 39,000 feet. I'm over the the Atlantic shelf and I'm able to use iMessage for free on Delta Airlines. And he was delighted about that. Living in the future. Well, we did talk about this as we landed because the friend I was with actually works in airline safety and I, I was quizzing him a little bit around, does, it, does airplane mode matter? And he's like, not really, because obviously on some flights, and we were only going a very short haul flight, but on some flights you can get Wi-Fi and things. And I was like, I wonder what that's like. Would I use it? But it's, actually, I think I quite enjoy being cut off from the world for a few hours. I can live without it. And I quite enjoy just reading a book or watching, in my case, I watched Ted Lasso on the way home, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Very good. Well, he was impressed. I, d- I did have it back in the day on Singapore Airlines. I think it was still quite new and quite limited at that point. And I've had it on Emirates as well. And I think you get 10 megabytes free or something really small, and then they want to pay for the duration of the flight. In most cases, I, w- I agree with you. I'd rather be a bit air-gapped for once. It's, you can almost guarantee you can be left alone when you're on a plane. People aren't expecting you to get back to them. That's quite nice. Yeah, I agree. I, I quite enjoy it. And for me, actually going on holiday is quite nice to escape a bit of technology and for me, it was reading books. That was that was my my go to. This is Wake from Sleep, episode sixty four for the thirteenth of April, two thousand and twenty three. Should we jump into some follow up? So here we are then, straight into follow up. Then you've bought a keyboard. I've bought a keyboard. I bought the Keychron V one QMK custom mechanical keyboard. So this is an area I've been sort of vaguely interested in for a little while. I've got a gaming keyboard. It's got mechanical switches. It's ridiculous with its RGB lights. It drives me slightly crazy. And I hate typing on it. It's fine for playing a game on, but I hate typing on it. And then the other end of the scale, I've got a couple of Apple keyboards, you know, the, the standard magic keyboards that, that we've all got, and, and a Logitech one as well. But everybody is always raving about how great a proper mechanical keyboard is that's sort of nicely laid out, that's from a, a, a proper keyboard, bespoke keyboard company. So I saw this recommended on The Verge. It's apparently very good for a bit of gaming, but really good for typing on as well. It's a 80% keyboard, so you don't have the, the number keypad and things like that on the right-hand side of it, but you do get a proper set of arrow keys, sort of bottom right. It's got And it's entirely customizable for Mac or, it's entire, or Linux or Windows, and you can program all manner of things yourself in, in its own JSON scripting language if you want to pr- configure certain keys to do certain things. If you want to, you don't have to. You're able to configure it for Windows or for Mac, or there's a switch on the bottom to flick between the two, so you get the layout right for the particularly the Windows key or the Option key. And you can pop off the keys, change the switches, and put in your own keys should you want to. So I know there's a lot of podcasters quite into their nerdy keyboard stuff, and I kind of fancied having a go, and this felt like a nice place to start, so I ordered one. So, what's, I've got many questions. One, I always fancied one. But I've never bought one because I don't quite like it. I don't really like a lot of travel and I think a mechanical keyboard would annoy me. And I never, when I've looked, I never know what, what switches I want. Do you know the difference on all the switches? Not a clue, but I'm going to find out. I mean, I remember back in the day, because I am that old sort of the original feel of the IBM keyboards and all that kind of stuff. And this won't be that, but 
that super clickiness I'm not mad keen on either, but I do like a little bit of travel on my keys. The Apple ones probably just don't have quite enough travel, I just like a little bit more. Logitech ones are almost there for me. So I feel like this will be a good compromise between this and what I've been used to for this gaming keyboard, and hopefully it'll fit the bill. I think it looks cool, and like I said, I really fancy one. I've actually got a Logitech MX Keys, which I'm holding up on the webcam. I quite like it, but it is the the full width one because when I bought it, they didn't do the mini one. Ah, you also have the same. It's quite, and for me, that's probably the right balance. I think of of travel big keys. I probably would have bought the mini one if it was out at the time. The reason I like the Logitech ones though is you can pair it to three devices. So I've got it paired with my iPad and my Mac. And I've got one in the house and that's paired with my iPad and my Mac so that I can, you know, depending on what, which device I'm doing, whether I'm at work or whether I'm doing, doing some on the Mac, Mac for pleasure. And so I quite like that ability. Do, do these mechanical keyboards do anything like that? I don't think they do. I don't think they do. The more expensive one of this, which is a Bluetooth one, can do that. You can pair it to multiple devices. I think it's the Q1 Pro is the one that you want. And it's actually got an aluminium base. It's an awful lot heavier. It's a full keyboard layout and all the rest of it. There's a whole variety of these things. So have a look at the website by all means. And as I say, I think it does. It can pair to multiple devices. This one, I believe, is cabled. And I will cable it into my monitor. And then it will work to whatever device is plugged in at the time, as my current gaming keyboard does, actually. So that works fine. I'm willing to go with that. I don't think I'll lose that much in the way of however many hertz you lose by sort of plugging it into a hub before it goes into the back of a computer. I'm not that good a gamer. My reactions aren't good enough, frankly, these days. What I want is a nice typing experience in the house, and I'm willing to have a go with this. So that was my little purchase this week. I think it's cool. I would love to go somewhere and have a go on all the different types of keyboard. For me, it's something I think I'd want to go and try out and find the one that, that I'd like, and then I'd probably be tempted to order one. Yep, good. Next one's yours. I think, I think it looks cool, by the way. Thank you very much. The next one was me. So just briefly follow up. We've touched on the Steve Jobs ebook coming out with quotes from Steve. And it, I think if I remember correctly, I did read the intro and it said, basically, this is a book book about Steve in his own words, in essence, from from his ex, from his wife. And so I downloaded it. I've stuck it in my Apple Books because I thought, you know what? An app I barely ever use is Apple Books. But it is actually quite good for storing ebooks and PDFs and manuals and things. So I thought, you know what? I'll go and have a look at Apple Books. So no, I've, I've downloaded it. I haven't got around to reading it because, again, I didn't really have a very tech holiday. So that's one on the list. Have you, have you seen it at all? I saw it come out. Links in the show notes, obviously, for those that are interested. And it's not just an Apple Books. You can get it as an EPUB and all sorts of things too. So you don't have to have an Apple device to read it. Obviously, it's going to be of more interest to Apple fans, I would suggest. I downloaded it to my phone because that's what I happened to have open at the time. And I didn't look at it since. I keep forgetting to go back and look at it. I'd rather have it on my iPad so I can have a proper look at it. Maybe on my flight to America, I'll have a chance to actually sort of have a read through it. And it's a bit of downtime I can do it. The good thing with Apple Books, though, is it will sync. So it's quite good. But it looks a really nice book. It's got some photos in it. It's got nice typography. Everything you would expect. You know, it should be well laid out. But I may pop it onto my Kindle, which is just a standard black and white, paper white, so that I can... I prefer to read it on that screen. But the f- the first few pages I read, I, I was quite engaged in it. Actually, I'm quite looking forward to reading it. Yeah, fair enough. And that links nicely, actually, into my next thing, which was also a book called The Computers That Made Britain. I think I mentioned it on the podcast before. If not, then here I am talking about it again. But I've actually finished it now. And it's the history of computing told from a more British viewpoint, really. Obviously, a lot of the computers that made Britain weren't made in Britain. Very of the computers were made in Britain. In fact, off the top of my head, there's about three in the book that are. The BBC Micro a Research Machines one and the Dragon 32, for those that are old enough to remember the Dragon 32. No, even Chris no. is shaking his head. So 
they're the three British computers, and they go on to the Econ Archimedes, actually, as well. Fascinating history to look at it from that point of view, but Apple gets mentioned a couple of times. The Apple II gets mentioned, the Apple Macintosh gets mentioned. More for their impact on, on Britain and how, how people had them and their influence they had than anything else. Commodore, Spectrum, by far, and a little bit of Atari, by far get more pages than these other companies because they did have more of an impact on the UK. You know, when I was a kid, you were a Spectrum kid or a, or a Commodore kid. And never the twain would meet, really. But no, it's really quite fascinating to see it from a UK perspective rather than purely Silicon Valley, which the books I've read before tend to be. So in my house, we were a Commodore house. My brother had a Commodore 64, I'm going to say. Probably a name ahead of its time. Was it 64 KB or something? I, I don't know why it was called that. Okay, fine. Yeah, and then we had an Atari ST was the follow-up. But what do you think? That was a good book? Was it interesting? Did you learn anything? Would I learn anything? You might learn something. I'm a little bit older than you, just a little bit older than you, Chris. So I remember a lot of these things. You obviously remember the Commodore 64, and that's what I had. I think in our very first show, we discussed that. So I've got a lot of fondness for that computer. But it, it is quite interesting. Things like the BBC and its impact. And the Dragon 32, for example, which I saw once in my life. I remember going around a friend's house, and he happened to have a Dragon 32 which most people have never heard of. They didn't sell very many of them. It was quite a well-regarded computer. There was a lot of sort of fudging to make it 32-bit. It wasn't 32-bit in those days. It was made here in Swansea. You know, the factory that made it used to make Corgi cars, if you remember the little Corgi die-cast models back in the day. And they pivoted because they thought computers were going to be the next big thing, but obviously didn't do very well. And they never made it in the American market either. But that was a bit of history. I had no idea. I knew they were Welsh. I knew there was a Welsh connection because they were called Dragon. But I didn't realize it was from Swansea. So I thought, oh, well, that's quite nice. So yeah, there is some learnings in there. But a lot of it is quite inside baseball. You know, this person or that person did a thing. And it's not really all that interesting unless you're really into your hardware specs. You know, the Zilog Z80 processor or when the Intel 806 came along and all that kind of stuff. It's not that interesting. There's a few snippets. But for example, the Apple chapters, you probably know fairly well already. Yeah, that's probably more my area of expertise. I would be interested in the Acorn piece that you mentioned because a friend of mine used to have an Acorn that ran Risk OS, if I remember correctly. And they were actually quite exciting because you they were starting to do them where you could stack them. You could buy multiple ones and stack them on top of each other and, and link them together and things. And it, it was quite a cool OS, actually. I used to, you know, it was always quite novel to go and play on a different operating system. And at the time when I think we were on Windows 2000, if memory serves, and that's kind of when Acorn started to die of death and obviously abruptly exited the market but i'd be I'd, i think i'd be a little bit interested to read it but i guess my expectation would be low yeah it's not the most exciting thing but it is only 12 quid and if you do fancy something a bit different to read that's actually a historical thing it's not the end of the world and that's for the physical book i don't know what the ebook would be like but link in the show notes and i found it quite interesting and it was cool good jump into the news into the news what have we got here then so We've got the return of our AI slash machine learning slash large language models that we've talked about a few times before. The first story is just a link I found on GitHub. If you're having trouble accessing OpenAI's website or you don't trust them running somewhere else, someone has released this piece of software called TurboPilot, which is an open source language model for that runs locally on your CPU or in a Docker container or something like that. So if you don't want it running on somebody else's server, you can take one of these language models and run them at home. Because it's GitHub, I would assume it would be updated fairly regularly and be able to get up to date. So it might be interesting for somebody that wants to get a start and having a look at LLMs, this could be a good place to go without relying on a Google or a Microsoft or OpenAI. Okay, cool. Yeah, I haven't haven't looked at this one, 
but it's amazing that the chat GTP news is just slowly bubbling away in the background. It, it, I don't know. It seems, it seems to be continuing at pace. I know. I really want to try out what Microsoft are doing with it. I'm like actually in the office apps. I haven't yet seen that that come through in the office apps, but I'm, I'm, I'm keen to play a bit more with it. But I think I want it more in a consumable format. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, this one is specifically Copilot, which we talked about before, has helped you while you code. So if you have Visual Studio Code or something like that running in the background, this can give you advice about your coding styles or standards or will write down your your variables for variable names for you or something like that. So it's a good place to get started with if you've got a bit of an idea about the coding side of it. I would say Marcus Brownlee had a very good overview of the sort of three main models that Microsoft, Google Bard, and, and OpenAI last week at some point. If I remember, I'll try and put the link in the show notes to that video. And he goes through just asking them some fairly simplistic questions into more advanced queries with follow-up things done in a very good KBHD style as he does. So that might be worth checking out too. Yeah, I'll see if I can pull that up too. I've also put in the show notes uh, a link to Mac Stories, which has got an iOS shortcuts version that you can use to interrogate ChatGTP. GPT, sorry, apologies. So I've popped that in there as well. I haven't played with it, but I know it's been downloaded tens of thousands of times because I was listening to it on a podcast and there's also some YouTube how-to videos and they've just released an updated version of it. But it's amazing how they've taken what is a relatively simple way of automating things on your iPhone or your iPad and actually now on the Mac and using that to as an interface into ChatGTP again to make it I guess more consumable to people. So that's one to try. I haven't tried it and that's probably some homework for me for next week is to to give it a go but it's quite interesting how a non-programmer has made an interface to it i think that's that's quite cool yeah it is quite cool and one of the things i quite liked about this is fedici isn't it federico fedici who came up with this particular shortcut who's also a podcaster the connected podcast is worth a link listen if you like that kind of thing the illustrations of this is create me a create me a playlist based on these parameters songs that came out since 2000 and have these artists in it or something like that and it will be able to do that which is exactly the kind of thing you would hope apple would do so i i feel like this isn't an answer if you want to use it you've actually got to pay open ai a small amount of money per month to actually make use of this shortcut and it is a small amount of money per month i think hundreds of queries you'd be spending something like 50p or something like that over the course of a month but you do need that open ai key and you do need that open ai account to actually get the benefit from using this particular shortcut is my understanding i think i've got that right so that sort of application of something like chat gpt embedded within the apple ecosystem is something a apple should have done years ago frankly it's not like they haven't got the data and b it's fantastic well done federico for putting something like this together i was following a mastodon sort of building up to this what he was going to do with it and sort of how proud he was as part of their automation month i still don't get a lot of the automation stuff that they talk about on that but but this is a really cool example no agreed i think it's quite it's quite neat like i say how a non-programmer has made an interface into it and it's just another way that we could use chat GTP in the long term. Same with Microsoft doing the co-pilot pieces in Office or in, you know, other Microsoft suite of products. So I, I think it's quite interesting to see where it's going to go. And it does feel like this is what Siri should have been by now. Something like this that is available everywhere and you can interface into it how you want to interface into it. So I think it's quite exciting. And it feels like it's not going to be long in, I'm going to say geekdom before it's out 
even more prevalent in just in relative, you know, in the consumer space. Yeah, I agree. And things like this are a good illustration of it. Which brings me back to the other side of ChatGPT and these LLMs is that there's a story in the Washington Post this week, it was on April the 5th actually, about an AI, how the AI chatbot is mi misrepresenting key facts with flourishes and citing fake Washington Post articles as evidence. So this real law professor was cited as potentially being as carrying out sexual harassment within the ChatGPT model because of the way it uses facts. It's not, there's no intelligence in this artificial intelligence, it really is just making use of the language. So... You know, this is a problem. And I'll just read the first paragraph of the story. One night last week, the law professor, Jonathan Turley, got a troubling email. As part of a research study, a fellow lawyer in California had asked the AI chatbot, ChatGPT, to generate a list of legal scholars who had sexually harassed someone. Turley's name was on the list. And you just think, that is absolutely horrendous for somebody who's had nothing to do with it and just happens to be a legal professor at another university. Because his name is on a list of professors, it's been bubbled into this lies, effectively, that the LLM is making up. So I just thought this was A, a fascinating story, and I felt really sorry for the guy. Now, I agree. That's awful, isn't it? Just to be, you know, included by association, in essence, not based upon fact or reality. So uh, shocking. Shocking. And it emphasizes the point you said all along. We can't rely on this yet. It's not there. No. For those limited use cases we've talked about so far, make me a playlist. Maybe help me write a paragraph of synopsis to mine. Summarize this for me. Do me this in under 100 words. Great. But the second you actually start to apply some intelligence to it, they fall over in potentially extremely harmful ways. Yeah, and I think that's the problem. Yeah, if you're using it for any content, you need to fact check it before so you, you go any further with it. Yeah, don't trust and verify. <laughs> Quite. So, moving on, next story. There's been an alleged leak of iOS 17 software. Did you get a chance to look at this story? Yeah, no, so I've read this one. I'd, I've seen it, and I had a brief scan through it. Anybody could have written this, I think, because it's quite sort of vague. So the things they're saying are there'll be more settings for the always-on display on the iPhone 14 Pro. It's possibly a given. Additional filters for focus modes, changes and additional options to managing notifications, some custom accessibility mode, some car key improvements. I'm curious to know what they do on car key because actually works really well for me. And it was rumored a while ago that they would be moving it just to use the ultra wideband instead of NFC, which is how it works now. Some changes in the health app, which makes sense. The health app is quite an unwieldy mess. You know, I think a lot of this stuff's quite obvious. Whilst we've got heavily improved features for search and spotlight, that's also been rumored. Um, a load of AR kit APIs and frameworks, again, given that they're going to be potentially doing a headset and there's a lot of smoke around that fire, that makes sense. Apparently, Dynamic Island's going to do a lot more. Again, you'd expect that now because I'm assuming when the Dynamic Island was originally coded, not a lot of people would have known about it. Not all the apps would have been involved, so it would make sense. And again, then they're also saying potentially the camera app will have some changes, but they're not sure if that will be to all iPhones or just the new ones that come out in the fall. So we, we may or may not see that in the summer. But I read the list and just thought, eh, you know, just it was nothing really exciting in there. But I'm not a big fan of rumors. I like to wait and see what, what we actually get. Yeah, I agree. It's deeply unexciting. I mean, the only one they sort of pop in at the bottom about the leak is also suggesting that Apple is actively testing active widgets. Well, great. You know, wonderful. Frankly, the last iteration of them should have been active. Widgets haven't changed my life. I quite like to see them there. They're just a shortcut to get into apps. So all of this is, it's very, if it's true, which it's a rumor, so, you know, don't believe the rumors, it's very incremental and about what you'd expect. 
Yeah, and maybe we do need an incremental update in some ways. I wish we didn't have iOS 17 come out this year. I wish it stayed on 16 and maybe we just go to 16.678, you know, and just go up the numbers a bit more because I don't think anybody needs a big, big upgrade. The widgets do frustrate me though. So I use the stocks widget quite a bit just for the company I work for. And the amount of times you tap on it to go into the stocks app and the stocks app shows a different number to what's on the widget on your home screen. It's very frequent. So you can't rely upon the the widget, which I, I think they need to fix that before they do interaction. But I'm amazed they haven't done a bit more just to put some buttons on there because surely you could do play pause even if you're not doing real-time updating of how far through the song you are you know they, they could have done a, a 1.5 version before they got say to version 2 which is full interaction so i do agree with you the widgets have gone very slowly i would love to see them on my ipad lock screen though i was going to say that seems even more obvious there's no reason the ipad couldn't have them even if it just had the same you know three or four that you can have now on the iphone and they constrained it and didn't really take advantage of the size which to be fair they very rarely take advantage of the ipad size i'm amazed we haven't got that yep agree with you and then there's a similar rumor just about apple are apparently going to release a redesigned control center again it's been a long time coming the article says they haven't updated control center so this is the if you swipe down from the right on your on your iphone and you get into all sort of the shortcuts and things within you can turn on on in mode you can pair your bluetooth headphones and all that kind of stuff within there has looked the same since ios 11 they're going to redesign that well okay they redesigned the home app last time around you can do fairly minor things and call it a redesign but again it's surely it's expected at this point I think it's expected. The bit that annoys me most about Control Center is trying to control your home in it. So it automatically works out what you want in there for your home widgets. And it keeps showing me my Apple TVs, which I never control that way. And yet I just want my light switches in there. And I'd rather it just give me some manual, which which five things do you want in Control Center? And let me just pick them. Uh, I think it's trying to be too clever for me. But no, I think they need to refresh it. Um, if you think it's going to be 10 years since we had iOS 7, which brought the big redesign, when we've never really had anything since then. And possibly iOS is now too big to ever get that full redesign. Because if you remember when iOS 7 came out, I think nearly every icon, every graphic had been updated. Whether it was, well, there weren't really many buttons in iOS 7, but everything had changed. You know, the way you scrolled, the transparency, the control center came out, every icon changed, every graphic within the OS changed. I don't think we're ever going to have that again, but iOS does feel quite stale. That it, it does need a, you know, a bit of a move forwards. Yeah, are they getting themselves into the Windows trap of every Windows now must have bottom left for the start button, even though they tried to move it to the center a bit. Very few people have kept it there. You know, there's these kinds of now it's embedded, now it's expected. This is the way it works. And Android, bless them, seem to be trying a lot more to do more interesting things, to move things around a little bit. They have system refreshes and redesigns slightly more frequently than Apple, although people depend on that too. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying Android is the answer to all these things. You just kind of wish they'd keep it a little bit fresher at the same time do we want it both ways we want them to be more stable and have less bugs and less crashes and, and all that kind of stuff and actually make some decent changes at the same time shouldn't be that hard for the richest company in the world nice to have a lick of paint every now and again though isn't it very much very much okay so next up we've got apple services are a bit flaky and now i think this is linked to wwdc so for those that don't know apple's worldwide developer conference is always in june predominantly and generally around now a little bit before we get to their big releases or upgrades we often get some flaky services and i wonder if this is them doing upgrades in the back end 
for what they're going to release in the summer, if that makes sense. Because we always get something, you know, six to eight weeks prior to the the launch. Because when they do WWDC, that's when all the developers can download all the new hotness. And so it's the new version of iOS, macOS traditionally, Xcode for developing. And so I wonder whether we've had some flakiness now because they're doing all, all the, the pre-work they've got to do ahead of June. And we get this most years, whether I wonder if this is their window to do the upgrades in preparation and get get things ready. It could be. The linked article is only saying that there were issues affecting iCloud, iMessage, shortcuts, the App Store, and the Weather app. There was an awful lot of issues with the Weather app over the last couple of weeks. It just hasn't been working, wasn't updating. People go into it with timeout. And then four days ago, the music app wouldn't work for me. I just got nothing every time I tried to play something. So I agree with you. It could well be that they're moving the deck chairs around in the background to get us ready for the next round of updates. Seems a bit much just for the developer side of things, i got to say, that, you know, you, you those... The way they're moving towards beta software releases, surely they could spin up some servers or something like that to handle the load just for the developers. The developers aren't the same as everybody else that comes along, but who's to say? I often wonder with Apple stuff if they're getting DDoS attacks and things like that against the services too. They're a big company. They're a natural target. They're not very particularly pro-Russian, for example, at the moment, and that's always been you know a potential vector for attackers and things like that. So there's a lot of things it could be, but they never tell you is the thing. No, they never go, oh yeah, sorry about that. I wonder though whether the weather app is the, maybe some of the dark sky folks have left and there was a shame they were all keeping going and, and we've since had issues. Because that is a concern in any organization. And we've heard a lot about it with Twitter. You know, some key people leave and all of a sudden stuff starts falling over. We'd like to think Apple is all perfect, but there are any humans there at the end of the day. So I think it's interesting, but it's slightly frustrating as well. You'd have thought the scale Apple are at now we wouldn't be having these kinds of issues. Absolutely. All services go down from time to time. The next, Our next story about Teams, Teams and Microsoft stuff goes down from time to time as well. And think of the scale of their Azure stuff. That's disappointing for what corporate customers pay for some of their instances and things like that. But yeah, no, I put the next story in especially for you because I know how, what a fan of Teams you are. And I thought you'd appreciate the fact that Teams now has Snapchat lenses for video calls. I'm sure this work went great for you corporately. I've got no interest in this. I don't even use the Teams backgrounds. I use the BEM. I love Teams, you know, and we use it. It's really prevalent in our organization. But I've got no interest in any of the fake backgrounds, any of this. I like somebody when they join a call just to show me where, what, what, what environment are they sat in. I like to see a little bit of their life. Rod, you can see me now. I've got some Lego in the background. I've got my, my sofa behind me. I've got a picture on the wall. You know, I, and you can see a bit of my personality. And that's what I want to see when I, I talk to others. So I not a big fan of all these fake backgrounds i'd rather just have the person but maybe i'm just old-fashioned i'm mostly with you i think there is a place for the corporate background for something so for example i was speaking to somebody today even on my day off i ended up doing work as you often do who was in heathrow airport about to travel back somewhere and he had his corporate logo behind him rather than showing heathrow terminal whatever departure lounge and i don't mind that actually i think if you if you've got to have that kind of thing going that's fine equally in lockdown I didn't mind we were joined by students and things like that. This must have been much worse for teachers who didn't have a lot of space, were living out of one room. You know, they were they were in their bed. Their bed had become their office. And blurring that out as well, I had absolutely no problem with that either because that's their living space. They haven't got a lot of room. They don't want to shop. Maybe they haven't tidied it. Maybe they just rolled out of bed. They're students. So I, I don't mind it. At the same time, I see where you're coming from. It is quite nice to see what's going on around people and where they are and all the rest of it. So it's a tricky balance. Yeah, I think I just like to see a bit of people's environments, but I get why you might want to 
you know, a corporate background, as it were, especially if you're talking to somebody externally, maybe, or, or you know, you're somebody's partner, supplier, consultant, and you're doing work for, for a company and you, you want to portray that. I guess I'm lucky. I'm in a shed. I've got my own little space. But I do like to see a bit of people's personality. I think it's interesting. I think it's a good icebreaker. No, but this is a diff- um, this is a slightly different thing. I mean, we're not really yeah. talking about the backgrounds here. We're talking about putting kitty ears on people and things like that, which is definitely less likely in your corporate space. Yeah, agreed. I've got no interest in this, but I guess this is Teams trying to broaden their their appeal, especially now Teams is part of Windows Eleven, and you get all the free versions that we've spoken about before. So it does make sense what they're doing, and I guess I'm possibly in the minority. More interesting to me in many ways is the fact that if this is Microsoft teaming up with Snap, and Snap don't often do a lot of things like this. Snap try and plow their own furrow. You know, they haven't been sold off to Facebook or Meta, sorry, or they haven't done an Instagram thing. They, they kind of do their own thing. They don't do these sort of corporate relationships. This is the first time I'm aware of that they have done something like this. So I don't know if maybe they needed the cash injections from Microsoft. It's a bit of fun for Microsoft product, but I think it's probably quite clever marketing for younger people looking for video conferencing software to give them something that they're familiar with yeah that's true maybe they're seeing how they work with each other maybe there's something another shoe to drop absolutely interesting though right we've got bitcoin up next what's this all about so this is just me beavering away at my sort of eco credentials as much as anything else this is an interesting article on the verge and i'll read the headline because it is good Bitcoin's insatiable appetite for energy is driving up pollution and costs for americans report finds so quite often bitcoin miners will point out how green they are because they're only using renewable sources of energy to do their mining and they're trying to spin the fact that what they do to mine bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies is extremely resource intensive it takes lots of servers it takes lots of gpus it takes a huge amount of energies that is really what bitcoin represent is the amount of work it, it, it takes to increment whatever the cryptocurrencies currency of choices so that compute turns into a currency of some sort. So to do that, you need a lot of energy. To have a lot of energy has an impact. So it's all very well saying we only use the wind farm outside to power our our data center. But let's face it, that's not the case. And this report backs that up. But the fact is, these cryptocurrency miners are actually driving up the cost for everybody else in the same sort of area. I just think it's a reprehensible that you know we've, we're coming across with a form of currency that does this kind of thing and be the impact it's having on people who've got no interest in, in cryptocurrencies mm, a couple of things here one have you ever been into mining bitcoin i tried it once for a day just to see if i could get it up and running and i could and i switched off it was a long time ago and i think i had half a bitcoin if i'd kept that on my computer somewhere it probably would have been worth quite a bit I, i've never doubt i've never dabbled in it and i i kind of wish i had in a way because it's it's something I'd like to know more about, but I'm kind of with you on this in that I don't like the, the well, the lack of sustainability, I guess, is, is the right terminology here in that it, it's not good, is it? It's, just, it's not good at all, but I've never dabbled in it and I guess I've got a full appreciation for it. But what got me is actually how many people outside of the tech sphere have dabbled in it and I do mind Bitcoin and I'll are very much into it whereas obviously it started off more as a geeky thing i guess or a techie thing and it obviously has spanned outside of that now but yeah i don't like it i don't like how unsustainable it is especially in the current i was gonna say the current climate for want of a better word i think that's a it's a very opposite phrase that i first came across bitcoin particularly at the time sony had the playstation 3 and they started to roll out that folding at home program so you could take 
bits of DNA and it would cycle through a portion of that and send it back. So it was distributed computing. And it was laudable, really, that Sony were part of that. And you could run it on your computer and you could do other things. So obviously, I think that stimulated blockchain and working on parts of puzzles and, you know, trading energy for compute is effectively what we're talking about. So I there's lots of things I don't like about Bitcoin. It's probably too deep to get into here, but I, the real purpose for it is untraceable currency. And of course, criminal organizations are going to love untraceable currency. And no matter how big a fan you are of the blockchain and all the rest of it, and there's lots of reasons people might not want transactions traced or an ability to get money or all the rest of it, it always reads like a scam to me. And that's what really bothers me is at some level, maybe it's just my lack of my ignorance about it, is it feels like a pyramid scheme. The people who got rich with Bitcoin are rich and it will stay rich now, and they want to make it harder for the people to come out, come along behind them. And a lot of these cryptocurrencies, and you see things like, is it the FCX case, FTX case that's ongoing in America at the moment, where a, a well-known crypto miner is, you know, the, there was no company underneath them all. It was just a big scam. And that's my worry about a lot of this stuff, is people are getting scammed out of their savings, out of their computer, out of everything else that's going on, because they don't really understand it. Because as you say, people dabble. And what are they investing in? And do they really understand it? I don't understand it, and I'm a geeky nerd type person who's into this kind of stuff. You've just said you don't really understand it either, and you're a geeky nerd type person. So if we don't understand it, Joe Schmo on the street's going to have even less of a chance of truly understanding what's going on there. And that's a hard sell. People know what money is, mostly. So it's it's I've, I've got I, it makes me unsettled. And then you read things like this about its actual impact on the environment and compute and energy and everything as well. And it just makes me even more critical of it. Yeah, I think you and I, are in a similar place on this one. Our thinking is aligned. Well, that's good. We, can, we don't need to say any more and we can move on. But I, I, if, if people are interested in hearing the odd more crypto, cryptocurrency stories or things like that and you want us to look into a bit more, then by all means get in touch and we'll, we'll do a bit more investigation. Yeah, that is something I think we're both interested enough in, but possibly don't know enough around because, yeah, it's not our bag. Next story we've got, which I found quite interesting because I was on holiday when this came out and I read it. So this is, the FBI says you should avoid public phone charges at airports and malls. And so obviously I was away. Thankfully, I didn't use any public charges, but it is interesting that recommendation is don't use them, you know, find your own ways of charging. What did you think? Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? More and more restaurants, if you go into any Starbucks anywhere in the world, will have lots of PowerPoints scattered around the place because everybody comes in with their phone or their iPad or their computer. They want to sit and drink coffee and eat buns, you know, while they're charging the devices and, and make it a nice place to work. Airports, obviously, are an obvious choice for this as well. you got to get some juice in at your device before you get on your plane or you've just landed or whatever the situation. Are you going to be there for 12 hours while you do your layover to catch your next flight? It's an obvious point of weakness, isn't it, for to, this juice jacking, as they call it. You know, it's more of a problem for Android phones, I think, than iPhones. But we, let's not be ignorant. We can be just as vulnerable on the iPhone side of the fence because who knows what else is out there. It's it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You you want to make things easier for people. And as phone batteries get better and all the rest, it may be less of an issue. But if you've just spent, how long was your flight to go on holiday? Two and a half hours, something like that? Four hours. Four hours to get to your place and you've been on your device the whole time particularly with your in-flight Wi-Fi, you're probably going to need to charge it because still not all planes have that. And again, planes could presumably be just jacked as well for those that offer in-seat charging too. So this is a problem. We need some means of validating that the power you plug into your phone is trustworthy or do you just take it all away and make everybody carry batteries? Yeah, well, I think it's two things here. One, obviously, you could take your own socket with you and plug that in. That's then got the I'm going to say three-pin socket because that's what we've got here in the UK, into then your USB-C or A, and then plug that in. And actually, I've got 
got one of those coming up as my my thing of the week but i do have one of those magsafe batteries that apple do and i you know my battery's running down and i just snap that on the back and it it's slow but it does get enough charge in it just to top it up and you know what i often do i've often got my ipad in my bag and so i'll plug a usb-c cable into my ipad and a lightning end into my iphone and just charge off the back of my ipad so i've always had a reasonably sized battery with me but obviously that only works if i'm not going to need my ipad for the day but i would normally take a charger with me plug that in and i don't use other usb sockets and i've been like that for a long time but this is obviously still a massive risk yeah it is interesting particularly coming out of america the last time i was in america we flew out from houston and landed at, at laguardia and in, in, in new york and both of them only had iPads. You could only do anything in the departure lounge on, on iPads. In every single seat, in every single station, there was an iPad. You wanted to order food, if you wanted to order a magazine, you ordered it there and you went over and got it. So there was an iPad bolted to sort of the device of the table in front of you, to the chair of the table in front of you, as well as a couple of sockets for your own thing as well. So you could download their app and do the same thing. But you couldn't just walk into a convenience store in either airport and say, I want a cheeseburger. No, you had to order that on the app. So they're sort of forcing you to use the things there. And that, to me, is implying an amount of trustworthiness and what's in the seating area around you if they're going to give you an iPad. It's Isn't that a weird situation to be in, though, to now say, do this, we've locked it down, it's got this. By, by the way, don't use the cables we've provided either. Mm, or the ports. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird world we live in, but you can't, you've got to be untrustworthy. It's like when you get an email, you can't trust it. You know, you've got to be cautious of the links. So I think it's just the state of affairs we're in. Very much. So and on the same note, and I put this in the show notes just for interest as much as anything, because I know you've bought your Apple MagSafe chargers. Belkin have released a similar project that sort of MagSafe's to the back of your phone. And I just wondered what your take on it was, because I've never had one of these Apple MagSafe chargers. I, I carry my, my battery around with me. So what do you think? I think this Belkin one, if I'm honest, looks better because it's a bit chunkier. It, it, it definitely looks deeper in the photos, but it has a stand on it, which is nice. You know, it's got a little, little arm that folds out. It's got a light on it to show you how much charge it's got, which is reminiscent of what your Mac used to do 15 years ago, I'm going to say. You know, you used to have a little button on the side and you can see how much charge is in the battery. And I think it's USB-C at the bottom. So again, you could charge it using your iPad charger or your Mac charger. I think it actually looks really good. Like I say, it's a little chunky but then it's only $50 so it's actually half the cost of the Apple one so for me I think this gets would definitely recommend to try it out but obviously I have not used one but I do like the look of it and the fact it's USB-C and not lightning would be a plus point for me yeah I quite like the color it's purple so that's quite nice it's 5,000 milliamp hours I don't know how big Apple's one is that's a very good question. I don't know. The, I'm not very good at batteries. So, so while Chris goes off and does a quick Google for how much the Apple one is, this is only $50, like you say, and I think the Apple one's closer to £100. I want to say it's it's thereabouts, isn't it? It doesn't £99. £99. So actually, if it, even if it's the same amount of charge in this, it represents better value for money from that point of view. And Belkin are on a bit of a roll at the moment. You know, we talked about their, their, their stand for their phones last week. I've bought a couple of their MagSafe mats for around the house so I can charge phones up around the place. They work really well, just as good as the Apple ones, frankly. They've got kickstands on them as well. So if you want to charge your device at an angle, it supports that too. So I'm, I'm quite impressed with Belkin and they're sort of fairly officially endorsed by Apple. They will sell Belkin things within the Apple stores. So it's a good thing. Have you found how many milliampers the Apple one is? No, it doesn't show you on Amazon and it doesn't look like Apple's going to show me either. So I don't have a good answer here. 
But I, but I agree with what you said, though. I think the Balkan quality is certainly very good. I think they're they're a good fit now for Apple. It's, I think their quality and their their design is massively improved. Yeah. So interesting device worth putting out there if you're worth thinking of getting some sort of MagSafe battery to charge your phone when you're out and about. This is an option for you. Moving on. Mac sales are way down. And I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but I don't know if we had the number. Apparently, Mac shipments have fallen 40% year on year as the pandemic boom ends. So we've said before about Apple seem to be reducing the amount of M2 chips that they'd order, but now they're seeing a 40% drop in Mac shipments. That's going to hurt. Yeah, do you think Apple's been a bit like Zoom? If you remember Zoom, they were recruiting loads of people. They thought they were, you know on to be a booming company and then obviously the pandemic obviously tailed off people started going back to work and zoom had to let people go it feels like apple have done a bit of this but i don't know a year later down the down the track in that they maybe thought that they their sales curve was going to carry on forever because generally apple sales curve does carry on forever so it feels like they've been bitten a bit or maybe they've overshot on the m1 of how great rosetta was how much quicker the chips were. They've dealt with all that pent-up demand. Everybody's ditched Intel, and actually the M2 wasn't that exciting enough. That, that That's my take. But 40% is a big old number. It is a big old number. And I think Apple were telegraphing this before, weren't they? They were saying, Don't, our next quarter, which I think the results are, are next month, aren't they? The, the, the next quarter results are coming out next month. Um, May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Um, Star Wars reference for those that didn't get it. I agree with you. I think this is a reaction to the pandemic. The PC industry as a whole dropped 29% over the last year, but Apple dropping 40% is obviously quite significant in comparison to that. We've seen the layoffs in personnel other companies have had to make up to this point. Apple have been resistant to that. I agree with you. I think the M1 was stellar. It It tied in beautifully with the pandemic as far as Apple were concerned to shift a lot of computers. I'm not surprised that they're getting A, with a slightly disappointing M2, and B, the fact the M1 is so good as we talked about before, there is no need to. There is no need to rush out and buy another Mac. That pent-up demand towards the end of the initial rollout, particularly with the dreadful story of the butterfly keyboards and Macs, put people off for a long time, I think. It feels fairly natural. The bulk of their sales isn't in Macs. It's worth pointing out the bulk of their sales is in iPhones and increasingly services, as we've talked about with the, with the earnings forecast the last few times. So, yeah, this is going to be a hit for them, but I don't think it's the end of the world. Now, maybe what they should have done was release the M1 Pro laptops in the old cases, in essence, with the touch bar, with the lack of ports. And then when they did the M2 MacBook Pros, then do the new case with all the ports, removing the touch bar. Whereas everybody got everything they wanted in the first iteration. And then the second iteration is bought, I don't know, 10% faster chip, say. And actually... You know, people could probably keep their own ones for, for quite some time unless there is some amazing bit of software that's going to take advantage of the m2 we're not seeing it i would imagine the m3 will just be a, another step along the track of performance but unless you're really pushing the boundaries of what your mac does you know you're not going to need that upgrade for us we've got three m1s in the house not planning to swap any of them why would you why, why would you and it's the same on the ipad front the m2 ipad didn't really do much for you either so I wonder if they actually have leapt too far into the future and now they're paying the price for it. And don't, don't get me wrong, you know, the M4 will come out in a couple of years and that probably will be a worthy upgrade because it'll be a big enough gap between the one and the four, say. But I think they've overshot and sadly they're now paying the price for it. Yep, I agree. 
Good. Okay, moving on. I talked a little while ago about I'd moved back to Firefox and I'd installed Adblocker in, in addition to my Pi-hole that I have in the house that someday I should probably talk about what that is and why I run it. And I'd also installed another extension to Firefox called Stop the Fonts. There's a Safari version of this now that's available along with Stop the Madness. The same developer makes the same one. So this block makes you stop any fonts that you would have to download from a website. They're a potential vector for attack, but quite often they just slow down the site that you're looking at as well. So it's quite nice you have parity now with Firefox and Chrome. You can install this kind of plugin on Safari and it will, will carry out the same sort of action. I haven't seen very many issues with stopping the fonts on Firefox and I just think this is a thing worth pointing out for the Mac. Yeah, I should probably tr try this one out. I've, I've not used it. I don't do many web extensions, I think, to be fair, but... Um... Yeah, it's probably a bit of homework in there. I quite like a web extension, and you almost certainly use one password, right? That's probably the only extension I do use. <laughs> so you get some extremely useful ones. These for me, Adblock, and the other one, of course, I've got is Zotero, which is a referencing, an academic referencing manager. If you want to look up a paper or something, it will just store it automatically into your Zotero app, and that works really well. I almost couldn't live without that. So I, a decent. you don't want to go mad with your extensions because they can slow your browser down, but useful ones like this are worth a go like a double a sword they can slow it down but they can make it faster too yeah well if you just go crazy and install all of them you're probably going to be in a world of hurt frankly but there are reasons for them perfect right what's this web fingerprinting we got coming up so again this is just something that i found quite interesting really that the, as we all know we live in the world of cookie warnings and notifications certainly for those of us who are of the EU or X of the EU. We see cookie notifications all the time. You've got to accept cookies, you've got to go on. And actually, you, America has more or less jumped in with this as well. And one of the problems with cookies were what it was storing on your computer and potentially they were a vector for attack as well. The, you know, there was quite a lot of information potentially stored in a cookie. It's just a little bit of text about potentially a password, potentially this, what your settings are for a website based on your browser. So the thinking of allowing cookies was to stop the proliferation of them. But another way of actually tracking people as they go around the web beyond cookies and what you store in the computers is web, fingerprint, web fingerprinting. And that is a unique signature for your browser, computer, and settings screen display that is actually entirely capable of tracking you around the web anyway. You don't need a cookie to do it. You can just do it based on you've been to this website so many times, we recognize you're running a Mac M1, we recognize you're running this version of the browser, your resolution is set to this, you're, the, you're, you're set to this particular part of the world. We can track you around anyway. And it's just quite interesting to read into this a little bit. A, you may not be aware of how much just looking at a website gives you. So there's a second link in the show notes to, to visit a, a JavaScript website. That if you scroll through, it will show what is produced by your browser every time you visit somewhere. And it is a lot. For example, for me, it knows I'm running an M1 Mac at a particular resolution. I just think it's worth educating people what's out there. And there's not an awful lot you can do about it, frankly. It's interesting that these things are being sold, moved on, and as a means of tracking you around the web. And if you look into this in any serious way, the, the amount of services offering to do stuff with web fingerprinting is really quite spooky. Not a surprise because you're a commodity on the internet, but I just think the whole topic's quite interesting. I think we end up giving away far more than we realize just by, by browsing the internet. Like you say, you pick up resolution you're running, what OS you've got, what language you're in, and more and more and more. So I've seen it worked on websites where you do want to collect this data because it is interesting. Like what, what resolutions are we in so we can optimize it accordingly or fit more on the screen or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, and academically, we've got uses for this kind of stuff as well. But if you're you know, testing a particular iteration of a, of a test, 
for for participants to to use on. Are they all visiting you on iPads? Should you you know should you change that? Is it interesting that the language you're in because you may not have targeted properly for people coming from South America or something like that for a particular variant of Spanish? So it's it's useful to know what people are doing, but then you think of the consequences of that for bad actors. As always, there's quite a lot of potential scams that could come out as a consequence. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. There are potential scams in our injection, like you say. Tesla, then, maybe not a great company in lots of ways. What does this mean? <laughs> well, as the owner of a Tesla vehicle, as I've, I've come forward to a number of times in this podcast, almost every week now we're seeing a, a story where Tesla does something just stupid. So I think two weeks ago we were talking about two Teslas parked next to each other and they got somebody got into the wrong one and drove away with it. Pretty bad. This week, and this is a report in Reuters, Tesla vehicles have lots of cameras externally and internally. So they do things like they'll do the lane control. It used to use to use LIDAR for tracking where you were on the road, for, for measuring your position, for doing the self-driving stuff. Now in late, latter Teslas, they've only used the cameras, but they have internal ones as well. So if you're involved in an RTA or some sorry, a road traffic collision or something like that, then you've got the camera to back up what was going on in the vehicle. But they also send this data back to Tesla. And this is a story about how Tesla have been using these videos and sharing them around within their own company for their own purposes. So people who might have been getting hot and heavy, for want of a better phrase, that goes around the company internally. And that's just, I think, despicable is the word I'm looking for. And also one guy opened his car while he's completely naked. <laughs> and they've got a video of it. Like It's shocking, isn't it? But if you keep your car in a garage and you've got an internal door to your garage, you've left something in your car just about to get in the shower, oh gosh, I've got to go and get that thing. It's not it's not outside the bounds of possibility. You might just nip down to the car on the buff to grab it. That's your in your house, in your garage. I don't see a problem with that. You should be allowed to. But then sending it back to Tesla for them to laugh over it or whatever, that's just not on. And also having a culture where that was deemed acceptable and they could get hold of this data. It's, there's just lots of mistakes here that a the car was capturing it b got sent back to tesla and then c employees were able to get hold of it freely and then it was in, you know encouraged to message around so there's a lot of mistakes I think. yeah and then that's the internal stuff but they're then sharing videos of car crashes as well so the next story is a car crash video in 2021 showed a tesla driving at high speed in a residential area and hitting a child riding a bike according to another ex-employee the child flew in one direction the bike in another this video spread around the tesla office in san mateo california via pri via private one-to-one -one chats like wildfire it's just wrong it's awful, isn't it? It's a bad culture that, to, that like I say, that that was even allowed to happen, let alone probably encouraged. It's yeah. awful. Unacceptable. And it doesn't make me feel, it makes me feel even worse about being a Tesla owner at this point. Yeah, I'm not rushing to switch. No, this is maybe why they're making the cars cheaper and cheaper. Because as I said a few times, the cars themselves are pretty good. I've been pretty happy with the car, but I'm not happy with the company. Yeah, I can understand that. So, staying in the automotive world slightly, another story is about an exploit on garage doors. This only largely seems to be affecting American users. I've got an automated garage door opener. It doesn't work with this particular thing anyway. This is a story about from Ars Technica. Open garage doors anywhere in the world by exploiting the smart device. The device ain't that smart. It's the network behind it all that's smart. So, if you own a Next device, N-E-X-X, they had a common password sharing the networking stuff across them all, which is fairly easy to spoof and guess, and you could just open someone's garage. So in this case, maybe you'd open the garage to find the naked chap just about to get into his Tesla, you know, as you were driving past it. But uh, yeah, not very good. I, I'm, I'm lost for words as to how they used a common password on all of them. Like How that even 
left the design stage of being a good idea to ship that like come on like 101 surely yeah this isn't hard it security stuff for things that are going out in the real world and people's houses this it's again it just beggars belief really that things like this still happen to this day yeah i agreed it's bonkers completely bonkers but uh, let's hope matter maybe solves this for someday oh Moving on. Moving on. I think that'll do us for news, unless it's a story I've missed, Chris. No, I think that's it. I think you've, you've covered everything there. On to media then. So first up in media, I've got Ted Lasso. I am loving series three. That's what I'm going to say. I think it's fantastic. I watched two episodes while I was away on my holiday on the flight. It was great. You know, an hour's worth of entertainment on the flight. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Would recommend. Equally would recommend my AirPods Pro 2 noise cancelling on the aeroplane. Fantastic. That sounds very blissful. I will be taking mine on my long flight. I'll be interested to see how long the batteries last for any sort of length of time. Yeah, I'm up to date on Ted Lasso, actually. I'm bang up to date. I know exactly what's going on. I thought the first episode was weaker. I wouldn't say it was weak. I'd say it was weaker. But since then, the series got stronger and stronger and stronger. And I'm enjoying it far more than season two. Ooh. I quite like season two. I'm, I'm enjoying all of it. I think it's all coming together. We've got a lot of recurring characters. I think it's, I love it all. I think it's all carried on in the same vein. The first Ted Lasso season got to be the best because it was fresh. We didn't know what to expect. Fantastic. So um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it equally as series two. For me, they're roughly on a par at the moment. I don't know. We keep talking about the pandemic and obviously it influences many things, but I think the first season of Ted Lasso just hit perfectly for me. It was that comfort boost that I wanted in the sort of depths of lockdown. And maybe the second season hit differently because we kind of moved out of it a little bit by then. But season one will always be for far the strongest for me. Okay, well, that's that's fair enough. I think you're right. Ted Lasso hit at a time when we all needed a bit of uplifting. And that's probably why it, it excelled everybody's expectation. Also, small shout out in the latter episodes for a character that's in For All Man- Well, an actor that's in For All Mankind as well that I wasn't expecting to see in Ted Lasso. Who's that? So she plays Jack, the venture capitalist that's funding Keeley, is is Ellen in For All Mankind. That's where I've seen it. I thought I recognised her from something else. Maybe I do, and I should go look her up. But yes, I knew I'd seen her somewhere. Thank you. Just a good bit of apple cross-pollination there, I thought, because she's a terrific actor, and it was great to see her. If only there was websites I could just type the TV show into and find out what other other films and TV shows yeah, you've been in. Things like Wikipedia or IMDb, these things don't exist, so I understand why it's tricky. <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia is my go-to, I must say. Okay, next up then, I've got some trailers. I haven't watched a lot, obviously, because I've been away. So first up, I didn't know this was a thing, but I've got Boom, 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 The World versus Boris Becker. And... I wasn't a big tennis fan, but I am, I've got into it over the years as my wife is quite into tennis. So this is something I'm planning to sit down and watch for my wife because she's a big tennis fan. So this looks quite cool. It's a documentary. It's, there's two two episodes out at the moment. I don't know if there's any more, but I think it looks quite good. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because obviously he's, he did really well. Uh, he won Wimbledon and he's been a TV presenter. He's quite charismatic. And then obviously he's been bankrupted a couple of times and accused of hiding... Uh, <laughs> things from court to avoid having them take it off him so it'll be interesting to see what see what it's like whether it will tell us anything that we don't know i don't know yeah so i mean he's an interesting character isn't he? youngest person ever to win wimbledon i think and ended up in jail you know illegitimate children all sorts of things coming out of the woodwork for him bbc presenter interesting character for sure i, I saw that it was i saw the trailer 
it was a review of it in the Guardian talking about it. So I thought I'll I'll have a look at that. So yeah, it's on my list to watch as well. Good sports documentaries are always worth a watch. I think even if you're not that into the sport, I think there's something. This is going to sound quite poncy, transcendent about a, a good sports person talking about where where their mind was at, how they got there, you know, what it meant to them, and of course when it goes wrong as well. I think there's something in the rest of us as humanity sort of watching, going, "Oh my gosh!" You know, this, this sort of car crash in slow motion. Sometimes you can see it coming. So he is quite a compelling character. He was a good commentator and obviously an excellent tennis player. And then it all went horribly wrong for it's, that was his own fault as well, as far as I'm aware. But yeah, I'm interested too. Yeah, and he was very charismatic. So I'm super interested in this and it'd be nice to watch it with my wife. So yeah, looking forward to that. And in a similar vein, I've also put in a TV show called Still and it's called the Michael J. Fox or a Michael J. Fox movie, should I say. Weirdly, the trailer in the UK isn't in the TV app but it is on YouTube. So I've put both links in. And this is, again, a bit of a documentary around Michael J. Fox. And it's obviously it starred him in the 80s for everybody that's seen Back to the Future and Team Wolf and various other shows he's done. And then obviously it's widely known he's got Parkinson's and how he's dealing with it. So I'm, whilst I think it's going to be a bit sad, I'm actually super interested to see it because massive fan of Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future is one of my all-time favourite films. So, yeah, I didn't know that was coming. That's coming on the 12th of May in the UK. I assume it's the 12th of May everywhere, knowing Apple, because I think they don't, they're not like other traditional companies where they've they've got those different timelines for different parts of the, the world. So it still looks also very good. So there's some great documentary stuff coming. No, I'm with you. And it's interesting what you say about YouTube there, where is that's where you saw it, is because the next one I want to talk about, which is also a trailer, is called Silo. And I also saw that on YouTube. There's nothing really about it on the Apple TV Plus app. So this is sort of a uh, post, post-apocalyptic world. It looked a bit like uh, City of Ember, if you've seen that kid's film, City of Ember. It's all set underground. Something seems to have happened outside in a sort of snow piercer sort of realm. Interesting. They've got a good cover of a Radiohead song going on in the background, sort of a very haunting version of Radiohead's Creep. Yeah, looks interesting. So, But again... Why can't I see that on Apple TV Plus? Why have I got a YouTube or a competing platform as even? Well, this is my exact point. How are they managed to post the trailer to YouTube, but not in their own app? Is it because we're in the UK and all their PR team are in the US, but it's in the US version, but not in the others? It seems very bizarre. Maybe they've got an international trailer to drop. I don't know. It just seems a bit of a home goal to me because I was actually just looking around in the apple tv plus tab in the tv app and i couldn't see half these trailers so no silo looks good i saw the pictures in the tv app but, but there was no trailer so no I'm, I'm i think some fantastic content yep definitely and then just a quick mention for napoleon which is a film by ridley scott because we both like a bit of ridley scott i think he's, he's done some quality films in the past and the martian I'll, i will stand by his most up-to-date good film of recent days <laughs> we'll just skip over his latter alien films as making napoleon film so i've an interest in the historical period i've got a big interest in books and fiction from that series from that time period sort of bernard cromwell for the sharp books and oh gosh I've forgotten his name. Patrick O'Brien for the Matcher and Aubrey series. Master and Commander is a terrific film. There's 21 books from, from the, they could follow one from there. Apparently there's a remake of that in the works as well. But it's a film about Napoleon's life. So I'm quite excited to see that by Ridley Scott. I think it'd be quite good. Will it stand up to Sharp? I don't know. But that's coming to Apple TV too. And it's an interesting deal, this one, that it's going to be released theatrically first. They obviously want to get the sort of the, the marketing and the Oscar buzz around a theatrical release of a film before it comes to Apple TV fairly shortly afterwards. So that's one to look out for in November. Always up for a, a Scott film, Ridley or Tony, but fantastic. So uh, yeah, I, I'd like to see it. 
we would wait for it to come out on Apple TV, I think. But equally, if the reviews are stellar, I don't mind going to the big screen. Do you right. What else have we got? What else have we got? Ghosted. Ghosted. Oh, I popped this one in there. Not the usual thing I'd go for, but actually looked all right. I think it's Chris Pine and oh, I'm going to get her name wrong. Anna. It's Chris Evans and Anna Darmus. Oh, I was so close, wasn't I? Uh, but it's just funny. And I love that the female's got the lead role and she's the action hero and he is not the action hero. So I saw it look kind of cool, cool concept for a film. And there was a bit in the UK at Tower Bridge, which is right where I stayed few weeks ago when i was in london with my family so i thought it just looked quite good as a bit of bit of light-hearted tv so a couple of things about this it's also got adrian Brody starring in it who i think is terrific he's always plays a good bad guy chris evans and adaramus obviously in a film together they were in glass not glass onion but they were in knives out previously on netflix both terrific in that as well so i'm i'm with you i quite like to see this sort of I mean, it's a gender-flipped film, and they're sort of playing on that a little bit for the way that it goes. The guy gets ghosted rather than the girl. She's got a good reason for that. The director is Dexter Fletcher, who you may remember from British TV back in the day, and I think he actually did Kick-Ass as well. Certainly he appeared in Kick-Ass. Good director. Also did Sunshine on Leith. If you want a musical based on The Proclaimers, Dexter Fletcher directed that too. So he went from being an actor to being a director. And yeah, I'm with you. It looks interesting. I'll watch it when it comes out on the 21st of April. I do like Dexter Fletcher. He was in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, and he didn't direct the Bohemian Rhapsody Queen biopic or parts of it before they all fell out and all of that. So uh, I think it'd be good. Yeah, I'm with you. I like Anna Darmus very much. She's she's excellent. So yeah, ghosted. I've got a tiny bit of follow up. I've now watched four episodes of Succession. Watching Peep Show has helped me. I kind of get it. I kind of get where the writers coming from now. Basically. There are the funny, awful people from Peep Show, writ large, with sort of a very Murdochian, Maxwellian background to them. So I think it's growing on me. I will stick with it. The bug may have just got me for it, and I think I just needed that sort of push over the hill to get there. But succession is growing on me. I love it. I love all the swearing, all the inappropriateness, and Brian Cox is stellar. So for me, fantastic. You've got to love it because he's a fellow Scot. That's almost not how that works, but I'll let you go with it. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. But I love it. I just think it is fantastic. Brian Cox always reminds me a little bit of the character he played in The Long Kiss Goodnight, which was a film he did many years ago, about 25 years ago, maybe 30, with Gina Davis, where she had amnesia. And anyway, he was part of that with Samuel Jackson. And I've been wanting to rewatch that film, but he just reminds me of that character. He hasn't aged that much, I don't think, in the last 20 years, to be fair to him. I'm, I'm glad you're watching it. It isn't for everybody, but I love Succession with a passion. Fair and enough. Season three is shaping up to be pretty good. Season four, sorry, yeah, you're correct. Season four, my mistake. So we're on episode three of season four at the moment, I believe. Last one for me, just in media, I didn't know where to put this, but I watched a CGP Grey video where he rates all the US state flags. It's about 10 minutes. It's fantastic. Just for something a bit whimsy to go and watch. Because I don't really know any of the US state flags, but 90% of them are horrific. And uh, it's just quite good to watch. California's got a beer on it, I think, right? Correct. That's the only one I know. Republic of California. Yes. Or California Republic. It's, it's, it's one way or the other. But no, it's fantastic just to watch how it's well animated. Very funny. Just quite enjoyed it as a, as a little break. And it's not a big time sink. Fair enough. Okay. Anything else in media? Sadly not. I'm going to say there's a lot of Star Wars stuff this week, but I'm not going to talk about it here. I'll, I, I need to let it percolate a little bit. If you're into Star Wars, have announced new films and new TV shows. 
well, pre-announced new films, including one that will be set 15 years after Rise of Skywalker that will feature Daisy Ridley. So we'll get an idea of what's happened after that most recent prequel. But they've also targeted films almost all the way through the sort of the Star Wars timeline, right the way back to about thousands of years before the, the Empire and the Republic, sort of the, the High Republic and all that phase, to Rebel sort of period to onwards. So it's just fascinating there really beginning to turn the wheels on that particular cash machine, both in terms of movies and a whole bunch of TV shows that are set to. So I won't jump into it here, but just to say that happened and looks interesting. I completely missed all of it. So I look forward to it once you've percolated that we can talk about it. I'll give you a summary if you're interested. Games then. All over to you. I played threes a little bit on the plane and my kids use my phone a lot whilst we were away. So I've not got much to report. So I might talk for quite a while because the main show we're going to dive into a bit of game stuff as well. I don't think we're going to vast amounts of detail, but just two things of note in the main game section is that there is a website called amacsourceports.com which tells you whether the game has been ported to Apple Silicon yet, which may or may not be of interest to some. There's lots of classic games in there, like it starts with some of the LucasArts games from back in the day. Zach McCracken and Indiana Jones and all these, and a lot of them are now available with Apple Silicon versions of them. It's a searchable database. You can go through it page by page. There's freeware stuff, shareware, abandonware, games you can go to stores and buy as well. So I just think it's fantastic now that there is this sort of resource available if you do want to play some of these classic old games on your Silicon map. And if you haven't looked at any of these games in a while, it's probably worth a revisit because there's some proper classics in there. Just saying, end of page one, full throttle. What a game. I love that game. And you've got Sam and Max hit the road. Oh, some classics here. Yeah, those LucasArts games were great. If you liked a bit of a point-and-click text adventure, and they don't make them like this at all anymore. You don't get games like this anymore. It's. I think it's it's worth a look if you can get hold of them. Yeah, I agree. They look fantastic. So that was one thing I just thought was worth following up on. And then the second one is a game that appeared in Apple Arcade earlier in the week that was one of the first games I remember when my iPad came out called Osmos, where you were sort of a bubble and you tapped on the screen for the bubble, and the idea was you'd consume smaller bubbles to grow bigger, and you'd win a level by becoming the biggest bubble, effectively, on the screen. So Osmos Plus was announced for Apple Arcade. It's a wonderful game. It looks fantastic. The sound is amazing. It's worth putting with a pair of headphones in, just because what the good job they do with the audio. And it's just to say that that's available on Apple Arcade, and that has spent caused me a little bit of time to be wasted on that this week. I didn't know that. I will check that out, because I used to love that game. It's good. It's nice to go back and revisit some of these classic ones. And I will say, Apple Arcade, for me, that's one of the best things about it, is when they re-release one of those games that really, truly were classics, you know, that you can get out and download again. Jelly Car is another one. I remember my kids playing a lot on one of my original iPhones, and that's been released on Apple Arcade too. So there's been a few things this week that I've thought, oh yeah, that's pretty good. How sticky they are, having played them, you know, 10, 10 years plus ago at this point, I'm not sure I enjoyed them, and I'll see if it's still on my phone in a couple of weeks' time. But in the meantime, Osmos Plus is great. It's, it's just a fun thing to go and download and have a play with. I'd like them to bring out Flight Control, if you remember that, where you used to drag to the plane to the airports, and you had different colour planes to different colour airports. And they then went off and created real racing and then got swallowed up by EA. But it was fantastic. I love that game. That was a hell of a game. And again as an illustration of sort of multi-touch and the various sort of the advantages of doing things on a screen. That was sort of a true leader in the area. The other game that I've forgotten to put in the show notes and meant to talk about is called Wreckfest, which if you played Demolition Derby back in the day, which was most racing games, the idea is to go around the track as quickly as you can, not hit the any, any of the other cars and get to the end. 
Wreckfist isn't about that. It's about destroying your opponents. You can still win the race if you want to, but you know, actively crashing into your opponents is encourages a whole variety of ways of doing it. It was free on Xbox Live Arcade, not Xbox Live Arcade, on Xbox Games Pass. So I downloaded that to play with it. It's quite good fun. You start on a lawnmower and you work your way up. But as I was playing it, I went back to my Apple TV and I noticed it's actually available as an Apple app on game on the Apple TV and presumably on the iPad as well. You could probably pair a controller to it. It was $6.99. I haven't tried it. I just thought that's interesting because that is an almost AAA game appearing on the App Store for your Apple TV, and there's precious few of them. Yeah, I wonder if some of this is precursor to Apple doing that headset piece. I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's worth checking out. If you like a bit of a demolition derby type game, instead of crashing into people instead of racing them, very different to Gran Turismo. Am I worth look? I do quite like crashing into people because I'm very good at it. Fair enough. <laughs> I struggle to race. Fair enough. So moving on, and a very short main show, I think, is what I have managed to do, because I've had a couple of days off this week, is have a look at Steam Deck emulation. So I think I talked, I said I might talk about this in a couple of weeks' time, and this is my follow-up, really. So I have a Steam Deck, as everybody knows. I've thoroughly enjoyed playing with it. I like playing some of the AAA games I've accumulated in my Steam library over the years. I think it's a terrific platform. I think we've recommended it. Somebody who wrote in that we sh- they should get one. I don't know if they ever did. So whoever it was, if you want to write back in and tell us how you found your Steam Deck, that would be quite interesting. So it's a portable PC. It runs very cool. You get about three and a half hours, four hours of game life if you're playing something really graphically intensive on it. It charges USB-C. You can, you can back up, back up, and off you go. And it will play almost everything that's come out recently. So if you want to play Apex Legends, you can do that. If you want to play the new Sp- the Spider-Man game that was translated from PlayStation 4 or 5 to Steam, that's on there as well. You can play that at, I think it's 40 frames per second, maybe up to 60 frames per second if you want to push it. It's sort of that good that it can play that level of AAA game that's just been released. Fantastic device. But can it do old stuff is a question I'm, I'm often interested in. And it turns out it's re- not only can it do old stuff, it can do it really well as well. So I, and the link's in the show, note, show notes, downloaded a thing called Emudeck. Um, you need to put your Steam Deck into desktop mode, which isn't very difficult to do. In my case, I plugged it into the USB-C of my monitor, press and hold the power button on the top. It gives you the choice what you want to do with that. Do you want to stay in, do you want to restart the device? Do you want to switch it off? Or do you want to start it in desktop mode? If you put it in desktop mode, you get Arch Linux with a KDE environment up and running on your Steam Deck. And dual screens looks ridiculous on my widescreen monitor because it puts the main screen on the Steam Deck screen and not on the on the big screen, but it doesn't matter, you can get around it. You visit a website, you download a file, you run it, this Emudeck file, it spends a while downloading various sources from the internet. And effectively leaves you with, asks you where you want to store it on the internal memory of the Steam Deck or on the SD card. In my case, I picked the SD card. Leaves you with a bunch of folders labeled things like C64, Amiga, NES, SNES, Switch, Wii, Wii U, MAME, which is lots of arcade emulators and all the rest of it. And and that's pretty much it. And if you happen to have, and I'm not going to go into the legalities of ROMs other than if you don't have the game, you shouldn't have the ROM. Is how I'll leave that. You can go off and search more on the internet if you want to know more, but let's just say that's the, it's not a grey area. Unless you have the game, you shouldn't have be playing on the ROM. If you dot put one of these ROMs inside one of the folders and then run the Steam the, the Emudeck application again, there's a couple of buttons to click, you're good to go. It will inject the, the art, it will download the art for that game and inject it into the Steam interface. And then you just click on it like any other game within the Steam library and you're off to the races with your emulated games. It works really, really, really well with consoles. So I have a few. I have an old SNES up in the loft. I've got a couple of SNES games kicking around. I downloaded F Zero. 
which is a, a, a game from a long way back in the day, one of the first sort of 3D effect racers that came out in the SNES, fired that up, and I was playing F-Zero at 60 frames per second, which I don't think it could do back on the original console, frankly, perfectly on my Steam Deck. And more than that, it remembers where you are in the race. So even if you leave the game and go off somewhere else and come back to it, you're just where you left off. Which again, the Nintendo couldn't do that back in the day. So that was quite impressive. Similarly then, I thought I'd try a computer rather than a console. So I tried Commodore 64, because as we've touched on in this show, it's, it's, it's dear to my heart. I have Commando and Bruce Lee still on tapes up in my loft. So I downloaded them, fired it up, perfect representation. In fact, it's so perfect, it took ages to load the tape file in, like they used to do back in the day, when you used to have to press play on the, on the cassettes to actually get them loaded. I've since discovered there's a way to fast forward through all that and get it to load much more quickly. But I sat watching the stripy loading screen of the Commodore 64 to load in Commando, with its amazing Ron Hubbard soundtrack and everything. And it just worked perfectly. If you need to, you can pull up a keyboard. The sort of, You can get at the emulator by pressing both thumbsticks down at the same time. You can get into the guts of it and do things with it if you want. You can change emulating, emulation settings and all the rest of it. But without doing all that, it worked perfectly. I'm, I think I'm struggling on emulation. What are you struggling with? Because I kind of got up my Switch. And I, I have a quick go at Tetris or something, as I've discussed before. But I actually play very few games on it. Do you think it's got much longevity? And it is cool. You can do it. And the implementation where you've detailed the store and the way it works, you, obviously, if you've got the ROM and off you go and it injects the artwork, and it, it looks really good from, from the website. But what I struggle with on the Switch, I think they've done equally as good a job on the Switch as you'd expect Nintendo to do with all their own games. But it doesn't stick for me. Well... We keep skipping through the game section anyway, don't we? Because you don't get a lot of time to play games. So, I mean, that's potentially a reflection of the amount of time you've got. As that's much as it, Yeah. And that's fine. I, I find myself in exactly the same boat sometimes. And the appeal of something like this is going to be slightly nerdy to begin with anyway. You've got to have a desire to want to go off and do it. Because, frankly, the Steam store is full of it. That's what I was trying to say at the start. It's full of amazing games. In the same way, the Switch store is full of amazing games. If you want to go and play... Super Metroid Remastered or whatever the, you know, the thing is that you want to get on and do. You pick up your Switch, you click a button, you pay your money and off you go. And that's great. But it's fascinating to me that my little Steam Deck thing, which is in the ballpark of what a Switch is, should I want it to be so illegal to do so, I could download you know, a Switch emulator on my Steam Deck and run Breath of the Wild or Super Metroid on it, as well as also being able to run AAA games, these Commodore 64 things, every arcade game ever written, and... PlayStation games, Xbox 360 games, PlayStation 3 games can be emulated on a Switch. And that, again, just blows my mind. If I want to play GTA 3, I think it was, as it, when it originally came out for the PlayStation 3, which I've still got a copy of because I've got all my PlayStations up in the loft, I can on a portable device that I can just walk around with. And that is just fantastic to have that kind of library available to you at any time. And if there's a place in your heart for a lot of these games, and I remember how much you used to play Grand Theft Auto back in the day, then being able to revisit that is potentially huge for somebody. Yeah, you're right. I did go back and play it a lot. And while you were talking, I just turned on my Switch. If you look at my Switch, the first five icons are ports. I've got Portal 1 and 2. I've got Metroid Prime. I've got the Game Boy Layer so I could play Tetris. And I've got Mario Kart 8, which originally came out on the Wii U. So <laughs> I think we've proven the point. Actually, maybe, maybe I am wrong and emulation is more prevalent than I thought. I do also have on here Grand Theft Auto vice city and crisis so some very old games that have been ported um to the switch because i don't think there's enough new switch games coming out especially from nintendo i know breath of the wild 
2's coming out. I can't remember what the name of it is, but I'm I'm disappointed with the lack of new Mario games for it. You know, they did Mario Odyssey. They should have had a follow-up by now. They did Mario Kart. They should have done Mario Kart. I don't even know what number on. Nine or eight, you know, version two for the Switch. So uh, I, I do get it. Maybe, maybe I play more emulation than I realized because I do like a retro game. I'm still interested in the in the Steam Deck and the actual shipping is one to two weeks now. So it's massively improved. You can get the dock now, I see. Do you have the official dock or will it just work on any USB-C dock? I just plug it into my USB-C cable. I plug it into my Mac. Yeah, that's what I thought you might say. But it does look it does look good. It's a good device. I think if I didn't have a Switch, I would probably go for something like this. I just don't think I've got the time in my life to, to play on another console. No, I think it's it's a perfectly reasonable response. I don't think it's for everybody. It depends how much gaming you do. You know, and, and your play date, for example. How much have you used that? Not enough, but it's a beautiful it's 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 beautiful. Well, Such a beautiful bit well, of hardware. It looks lovely and that screen in that light looks terrific. But I remember you saying before that the backlight was a real problem for you. Well there is no backlight. Exactly. So play in perfect lighting to really enjoy it. It is beautiful, they keep updating it. And I do actually want to fiddle a bit with the developer tools on it to do some coding, but because I'm trying to code an app, I haven't then got time to go and do that as well. So there, there is only limited time in the day, isn't there? That's, that is a problem. There are only so many hours. And me going on this emulation kick, A, I kind of wanted to because I was curious what else it could do because I'd seen reports that it was really good for emulation. And, and B, it scratches an itch for something. I, I get a nice nostalgic hit from firing up Commando that I played when I was whatever it was, 11 or something like that, possibly younger. You know, and seeing that run in a mobile device where I used to have to set that up next to my TV, plug things in, get the cassette recorder, shift run, hit play on the thing, go off and make a cup of tea, come back, oh, the tape had stuck, take it out, start it again, you know, and 20 minutes later the game was up and then you'd go and you'd play that one game that you'd spent $9.99 on or, or, or less to get the tape of the game back in the day. And it was an investment in your time, all that just to get to the point of being able to play the game. And, you know, to now be able to pick up a mobile thing, go and sit in my couch over there, library click, boom, and I'm playing it. It's just amazing. Imagine buying a game for nine ninety nine in this day and age. I mean, everything's, what, 50, 70 pounds, somewhere around there? Well, I mean, it's, I should probably have touched on it in gaming. There was a, pat, a new version, a new release for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. I paid fifty nine ninety nine, I think, for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. There's been three season passes. Each season pass, unless you play all, grind through all the things in them, are about nine ninety nine to buy the season pass to get the horse armor to go through it. This time, the third season, they've released a season pass plus, which gets you extra shiny horse armor, and it's twenty nine ninety nine. So potentially you've spent 60 to 90 quid on the game if you bought the Vault Edition when it came out. £10 for this thing and then bought the Super Special Plus thing as well. That's a huge amount of income for a company. You can see why Microsoft are so desperate to merge with Blizzard Activision. Yeah, you know, you're right. You can see it. And I guess they've got to, you know, they've got to generate that subscription revenue, haven't they? It's that reoccurring revenue that everybody's so keen, keen to get. And this comes back to emulated games. The chances are there's an emulated game like Grand Theft Auto that was really deep, that was good in its day, that's still perfectly playable now, as you've just demonstrated from picking up your Switch. The original Portal is an excellent game. It, run, it, it runs natively on the Steam Deck because it's a Valve game. It looks terrific, it plays really well, and I can play it when I'm sat on a train. And that that's really quite compelling to give you that depth of a game that maybe you didn't finish, you can go back and visit again you know, that you held in special regard, whatever it would be that's, that's the case for emulation. Or maybe you didn't play it the first time around, and that's where I'll skip over the legalities of a lot of these ROMs and things. But 
there is there is something quite compelling in a being a completionist or b going back and visiting something you didn't get to finish and maybe you never will because you haven't got the time to play games but it's just it's a it's a useful thing to have in your sort of armory of things yeah i picked up the two portal games i think they were they're both about eight both of them in a bundle were eight pounds in the uk because they're on sale at the moment i thought you know what that bit of nostalgia is worth eight pounds to me so I, i will do it and actually i wouldn't mind to let my kids have a go on it because i think it's cool concept they might quite enjoy that as something a bit different portal 2 is one of the greatest games of all time mm. it's fantastic it's great um, with, with some terrific voice acting from Stephen merchant and jk simmons yes it is Stephen merchant isn't it yeah. interesting so no, maybe you're right maybe maybe you're right um it's, things like emu deck are, are worth it and it, I don't know. one day maybe i will get a steam deck i'm kind of waiting i think i do a steam deck v2 Almost certainly it's been such a success, but I don't think it'll be for a couple of years yet because the, the, people are just getting started with this, I think. So watch this space. But anyway, that was just my little report on a bit of emulating and fleshes out our game section because it's been a bit sparse the last few weeks. Yeah, I think what I need to do is remove threes off my phone and then when I go to play a game, don't pick up my phone, but actually pick up my Switch or my Playdate, my actual gaming device, and have 10 minutes on that instead of 10 minutes on threes. Fair enough. And maybe you'll have to get into a Slay the Spire crippling habit like I've just managed to get it off. But uh, yeah, good. Good. Shall we move on then? What is your app of the week? So my app of the week is by Brent Simmons, who also wrote Net Newswire. It's a small thing. It's $4.99 to unlock all the features of it. And all it does is it creates playlists for you based on some of the categories within the App Store. So if you want to create a playlist quite efficiently based on a genre of music or a particular art or something it just does that and lets you save it within the app there's more to it than that but that sort of just gives you a flavor for it i basically bought it because it was brent simmons i wanted to support him i think net news wire is great and it's just quite an efficient little app that i thought a lot of so and you can add as many stations and tracks to it as you want so it works really well i was about to say i love he's got two apps one is this music app and the other one is a dough temperature calculator to work out the water temperature for the dough if you're making pizza dough i guess but this is the true definition of building an app to scratch your own itch isn't it it's yeah definitely i yeah. think it's fantastic yep and if you look at the reviews it's got five out of five across the board well from its one rating so far so maybe that was me i don't know <laughs> no i think i think it's good i'm not a big playlist person i'm more of an albums person i don't know why that's that's just me but i think it's good i've i've flirted with the idea myself of doing something with the music stuff because apple do provide a really good music api so that you can you know, have access to somebody's music library and then write an app around it. You've got all that data to play with. And I think it'd be quite interesting to make a music-like app and see if I can get rid of the annoyances of Apple's music app. But I've, it's an itch I've yet to scratch. Fair enough. Well, it's good, it's good to have a goal. So that's my app of the week. It's a very simple one. That's a good one. So look, just briefly, I've got a thing of the week as usual. So mine this week is something I took on holiday and I carry around in my bag and it is tangentially related to the story we read earlier about not using chargers in airports and in cafes. So it's just a plug. It's made by a company called Ugreen. It's the UK version I've got in the show notes. It's got the folding pins like the Apple plugs, but it's got two USB-Cs and one USB-A on it. They also do a bigger version of this which is 100 watts, this one's 65, but the 100 watt one doesn't have the folding pins and I don't know why. But for me, this is fantastic to lob in your bag because you know when you get the other end, you'll be able to charge your devices relatively quickly because if you have one device plugged into the top port, it will take all the power, basically. I think it's really good. I took it on holiday with me. I used it to charge. I really only my phone and, and my watch. I've also bought a USB-A 
to Philips charger for my shaver so I can use the one plug to charge all things that I might need while I'm whether I'm work or away with the family but it's just a simple thing and I do think the folding pins is massive because it just makes the plug so much smaller in your rucksack but anyway would recommend and in the UK you can tick the box and get five pounds off with a voucher so it's 40 pounds which I don't think is too bad for a plug like that but would recommend because you only then need one socket and you can charge three things quite quickly on it. Yeah, 65 watt charger as well, so that's good. You slowly charge your laptop with that too, so I think that's that's a solid device. Yeah, I find if I'm away on work, you know, I just I can plug a device in overnight, and obviously the battery will last all day. I just think it's a it's a nice bit of kit, and it and it's the right balance of watts versus size. You know, if you just want something relatively small in your bag, so that that was my recommendation, and I took it on holiday, and it means that if you're in the airport, you can use a plug socket and not a port that's potentially going to leak some data or put some malware on your device. And that's a very laudable goal. I think we could call that a show. And that's the show. Thank you to everybody for listening. If you want to get in contact, Rod is at G5Maniac at Mastodon.scot. I am at underscore CJP at Mastodon.social. Or you can email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Thanks. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. Mm-hmm.